This episode of Paris Good Food and Wine is a tribute to two of our finest culinary critics who recently passed away, Anthony Bourdain and Jonathan Gold. Bourdain, of course, was the host of No Reservations, a food and travel show that became embedded in people's hearts. That Bourdain passed away here in France makes it all the more poignant. And then only just a few days ago, Jonathan Gold, the Los Angeles Times and Good Food radio show fame, also left us. He was a Pulitzer Prize-winning food journalist and a staple on the Los Angeles restaurant scene. So for these two accomplished and respected members of our profession, here's a show curated just for them. It's comprised of a few of the best from season four of Paris Good Food and Wine. I hope you enjoy it, dear listener, and I also hope that they may hear and enjoy it too, wherever in food heaven they may be. First up is Jamie Anderson, the wine director from La Reserve Hotel and Spa here in Paris, who talks to us about food and wine pairings. La Reserve was named number one hotel in the world by Condonast's Reader's Choice Awards this year. Jamie actually got her start by working for Wolfgang Puck in Los Angeles. Well, it's kind of you to call me an expert, but um, the the thing about food and wine pairing is that, um, you know, there's a lot of theories behind it, but it's also a very subjective experience. So something that might work for me might not work for someone else. That being said, you know, there's one rule that a lot of people gravitate towards, and that's if it grows together, it goes together. Um, so, you know, that's why we, this is not French, but white truffles from Piemonte with Barolo. It's uh, one of those kind of combinations that you can't really replicate and everyone knows about. And they're from a very special region in, in northern Italy and they just, you know, it's magic. But there's also something to be said for that's not, that can sometimes be a little constraining. You know, you're limited to those two things. And I'm sure that there's, there are a lot of things that go wonderful with white truffles that aren't necessarily from Italy. So there's also finding similar flavors which would be more of like a congruent pairing. A great example of this would be beef and mushrooms. So what we're talking about here is savory kind of umami flavors, and that's a congruent pairing. And there's also complementary pairings. Complementary is more like, you know, flavors that might go well together from two different ingredients or two different structures that go really well together. So let's say we have a high acid wine, and then we have something really rich, the acidity of that wine is going to cut through the richness and the fattiness of that particular protein or the, uh, the rich portion of that, that dish. So there's a lot of different, you can have a lot of fun with food and wine pairing. You don't have to be uh, hammered down to, well, you can only have this with that. You really just have to kind of hone in on what are the predominant flavors of that dish? What is the texture of that dish? And what wine maybe will contrast it while complimenting it. You know, you well, as you were talking about a wine that will cut through, on, on a recent Perfect Pairings, I presented a Riesling to a group of, of American women um, over from Texas, actually. And for, number one, Riesling in the United States is not Riesling here in France. And so, because um, she had, had made a note when I'd asked them what kinds of wines did they like, and she had said, well, I don't really like sweet whites. And so when I presented a Riesling, she was like, uh, you know, and I said, but this one's from Alsace. So I guarantee you're going to be surprised. So one, you know, the Rieslings here from Alsace are nice and dry. And also we paired it, you know, with, it was like chicken in a creamy, creamy mushroom sauce. Yeah. And, and well, now you tell me why you're saying absolutely, because it, it worked really well. 
Well, you're we're talking about chicken here and the robust flavor of chicken with the rich. Uh, it's accompanied with what would you say it was accompanied with? Reason. No, uh, oh, creamy mushroom. Creamy mushroom. Okay, so we're talking about um, you know these very earthy flavors, a very rich texture, and when you take the drier, normally drier uh, styles of riesling from Alsace, what it's going to do is it's going to cut through the fat. So what the Riesling does is it cleanses the palate and not only cuts through uh, the richness and the creaminess of, um, of uh, this particular dish, but it cleanses your palate for the next bite. And, uh, you know, it's interesting that you bring up Riesling because if there's one thing that I could tell uh, any of your viewers that might happen to be listening, Riesling is one of the most versatile and amazing grape varietals in the world, and it's got a, a terrible rap for that, which I'm not sure why. Well, I, I know why there was, you know, some pretty bad Riesling that was made for a while there. But even the sweeter styles are incredibly versatile with food pairings, um, particularly you can have the Baranas Lezes and Trocken Baranas Lezes of Germany. Um, you can have the sweeter expressions, not Riesling, but Chenin Blanc here in Loire Valley, the Moelleuse, the Duze, the Demisex even, that are incredibly versatile with food and wine pairing, uh, especially when you have ingredients like ginger, Thai spices, you know, saffron. Uh, it's, it's something that you can start off with because they can be light and very mineral if you have them as like a demisec. And it can go through the entire menu all the way to dessert if you happen to have something that has stone fruit or honey or vanilla or, um, you know, ginger again in the dessert. These are incredibly versatile wines. And, um, you know, it's I have a lot of guests sometimes that tell me when they're doing a food and wine pairing with their tasting menu, you know, I don't really like sweet wines if we can avoid that. Of course, I'm going to make sure to bring them a wine that they like. But before bringing them a drier wine, I always say, just try this, just try a little bite with the dish. And then they understand. They see that maybe they don't like this wine by itself. But when you put it with the right ingredients and something that, you know, uh, is going to not only lift the wine, but even provide flavors that you didn't find in the first place. When you put them together, there's something that the dish and the wine wouldn't have shown by themselves. Paris Good Food and Wine is generously brought to you by Paris Food and Wine. Thank you for listening to Paris Good Food and Wine. If you'd like to support our show, you can find our Paris Food and Wine shop at parisfoodandwine.net. That's Paris foodandwine.net Next up is Dirty Dick's Tiki Bar owner, Pigal's very own Scott Shooter. I don't think that there can be a better setting to interview Scott Shooter, who's the owner of Dirty Dick bar, the tiki bar in Paris, then in the shadows of the Pantheon, which is a landmark here in Paris devoted to great men, the grands hommes. Because honestly, in the world of, uh, of bars and cocktails and this whole, you know, huge cocktail trend that has swept Paris in the last years, you are one of les grands hommes. So Scott, can you just tell us a little bit about how you came to open up your quintessential Tiki Bar, Dirty Dick. 
Hi, uh, so yeah, my name's Scott Shooter, the owner of Dirty Dick. I moved here in 1998, actually to have my son. Uh, I moved here during the World Cup. I started barbacking, it was one of the first jobs I could get. Even Glassboy, I wasn't even barbacking, I was just picking up, like doing all the glassware and everything in the bar. Uh, moved up to, in the Six Iron Discipline, running a pub. It was an English pub like we're in now, actually. It's called the Maze. It's still there. I was running that for a while. That's where I first started making cocktails and stuff. But then um, later, basically been bartending, you know, about 18 years now. Um, fell in love with Tiki. And my dream was to open the first tropical cocktail bar in France. And basically, that's pretty much how it started. And uh, that's why we're here now. You know, when we met up today, um, one of the things I first commented on was, one, your T-shirt, which is the logo of your bar, Dirty Dick, which, with a, a big red pineapple and, like, these wild pineapple stalks and leaves coming out of it. And then also, you match it because you have, like, a little teardrop uh, tattoo. And I and then you explained to me something about pineapples that I had actually never, I had never known. Can you kind of tell that story again? So uh, The... It's not the only reason we'll use it for our, our logo, uh, but being a you know tropical cocktail bar, we, we do use a lot of cocktails every day. Cocktails, sorry, pineapples uh, every day in what we do. But the pineapple is the symbol of hospitality. Back in the day, people would... Basically, if you had a pineapple in your house, you were either royal... At the beginning, you were royalty or a very well-off, distinguished family... And, and to offer a pineapple uh, was very hospitable. And that's kind of where it all comes from. Where this, and so the pineapple in, in our industry is the symbol of hospitality. Now we hear from Stephen Spurrier, a fixture on the French and English wine scene, a consultant editor for Decanter, and the author of the recently released memoir, Wine, A Way of Life. <laughs> I'm Paige Donner, host of Paris Good Food and Wine. We're speaking with Stephen Spurrier, the organizer of the original Judgment of Paris. The Jay Yeoman sent me the list from um, MacArthur Liquors, which is the best wine shop, wine store in Washington. And um, I picked out the Rhones, and they're going to be very interesting. And then without blowing my own trumpet for the Washington clients to get someone like me come over and give a master class that doesn't happen every day so i'm not surprised it's filled up in fact i'd be very annoyed if it was not oversubscribed you know also too um and i'm and i'm not blowing my own horn but uh well last well earlier this year now but almost a year ago now there was a congressional delegation that came through here and several of them worked for house and several of them worked for uh you know senators in dc and i got to talk to, to a couple of them and i asked them what's the D.C. food scene like? And they said, well, you would be surprised. They said, it's really picking up. We actually even have one or two one Michelin-starred restaurants. So so now what about, um, will the Academy Duvan, will it focus solely on wine, or will you also look at wine and food pairings? 
Um, if we look at wine and food pairings, which could well happen at Masio, where we are, there would be it would be a wine dinner. And but I don't think it would be wine and food pairings. I dislike that idea intensely. My mantra is drink for mood and not for food. I think wine and food pairings is extremely pretentious and also extremely distracting from the wine. But there would be a dinner if Eduardo Chadwick were to come to Paris. There would be a dinner to show off his icon wines with the food that Marseille would create to match the wines. But it would be a dinner with wines as the forefront. Fascinating. I love, I love to hear your, your perspective. Okay, so now how, let's kind of uh, going off into a, a related direction. How did you come to be such a champion of French wines? I mean, you just spoke a moment ago about you have your own sparklings now in southern England. I'd love to hear more about that. And then also, how is it, I mean, you could have chosen any country, you know, you could have chosen Italy, Spain. What fascinated you so much about about French wines. But first, let's hear about your sparklings, and then let's go to that next one. Well, um, uh, my wife bought a, a property, bought an estate in Dorset um, 30 years ago. And when I walked around the farm, I saw there was a lot of chalk on it. And I was still working in Paris in those days with La Canterie du Vin. And I put a couple of little blocks of chalk in my pocket and took them back. And La Cadre de Vin showed them to Michel Bertin, who is the great French guru. And I put them on the table and I said, Michel, where do you think those are from? He said, well, Champagne, of course. And I said, no, they're from Dorset. He said, well, you should plant a vineyard. And so that put the idea into my head. And in 2009, with a lot of advice from the Boisset family and the sparkling wine experts, we did plant a vineyard. So we now have a vineyard called Bride Valley Vineyard because we're in the Bride Valley. The River Bride runs in front of our property. And um, it's uh, reputation-wise, it's going well. Quality-wise, it's going well. Volume-wise, it's not going very well. Um, I wish we could produce a bit more, but I'm not unhappy to have done it. So it's a, it's a, jump, into the un, it's a jump into the known unknown using a Rumsfeld phrase. Very nice. And I know you've mentioned now, too, uh, Jean-Charles Basset's name a couple of times. And, of course, he's the famous Napa producer who's, fa who's originally from Burgundy, huge Cremant de Bourgogne family, which I, I'm personally a, a great fan of the Cremant de, de Bourgogne. I think, yeah. I think in the coming years it's going to give uh, English sparklings and also maybe, oh, shall I dare say it, champagne, so <laughs> a little bit of competition. But um, now let's let's switch to uh, why France? Why French wines? Well, I was, I mean, being brought up in England in the, in the early 60s, I mean, drinking wine from the early 60s, it was mostly French. Um, of course, we had sherry and we had port and some German wine, but the German wines were generally sweet. And, you know, as a young man in, in London, I was didn't drink too much sweet wine. So French wines were the wines that, We'd heard of names like Nuit Saint-Georges, Chateauneuf-du-Pape, Chablis, and all that kind of stuff. But the key to it all, uh, when Jancis refers me as, to me as the champion of French wine, is on the day of our marriage, on the 31st of January 1968, my wife and I boarded the Golden Arrow to the train from Victoria to Paris, and for the next 15 years we lived in France. So I'm afraid it got under my, they got under my skin. <laughs> Thank you.
be listening to Victoire de Tayac, who, along with her husband, opened the Grand Café Tortoni in the Upper Marais last fall, reinvigorating a literary landmark of a café and reinitiating elegance in the ritual of coffee here in Paris. Uh, it was funny how um, coffee, in a way, now, um, the French coffee have such a bad reputation, which is well on, I think. <laughs> so now it's true that coffee is Italian. Coffee is American, in a way, too, because now you have great American coffee and you've been inspiration for the way you deal with coffee culture all around the world. And uh, But French coffee just disappear and uh, coffee is for and French is sure known for things but not for his coffee and we thought it was a little sad because uh, France used to have a very strong coffee culture coffee used to be uh, uh, very popular and part of the philosophy life philosophy cafe uh, for hotels and uh, he used to have very good reputation and he had all these funny words like you know so we kept cafe crème that we still order in coffee but for example cafe minute which is our French espresso just disappear and we thought that was very inspiring and that we could uh, try in this new location we have in Le Marais to do an experiment because I really see it like a laboratory because it's only six seats to have the same kind of uh, service and care of details with a French cafe which would be Tortoni because for us it was the most famous one and so just to go back on uh, Tortoni's story so Tortoni was a huge success but after in terms of um, and a familial institution but after he went through um, uh, the family uh, stopped the business through um, a wedding and things like that which things would happen so so we just uh, just took over the name and decided it would be a very interesting way for us to experiment in this idea of uh, French uh, coffee and, and to do something around it. And so uh, here we are at our first try. <laughs> well, it's, it's a great hit. And then another one of the things that you have, um, so, okay, so I just understood then you to say that Café Minute was actually the French way of saying espresso. That's the yeah. original way. Yeah, exactly. That's the original way. Okay, so I learned something. And also I have to say that there is very nice, very respected coffee place in Paris that are well known, uh, like for example Verlet, Rue Saint-Honoré. But it's true that regular coffee in regular cafe in Paris, it's not a great thing. Yeah, I, um, there's been a bit of a renaissance, so you seem to be kind of in that wave now, which is great. But but this is a truly elegant. I mean, the you know, there's a marble bar, the wooden, the ancient wooden stools. You have these copper samovars, and the the service is so elegant. I mean, it's bone china with like gold inlay served on on silver trays. I mean, everything is just exquisite and very elegant. You know, another thing that you've done here that's so interesting is um, you have the what, what are the little Japanese <laughs> so as I told you this place was interesting for us because this location was um, very big and we could try things and um, we are also very interested in, in food <laughs> and so we just spent one year in Japan living in Tokyo and uh, we discovered this uh, Japanese sandwich called onigiri which is just a triangle of fries filled with something inside, savory and uh, that you have when you don't have time to have lunch, that it's sold everywhere in combini which are um, 7-Eleven, that you have all around that mother do to kids, that you buy everywhere and that are very nice and very fooling and uh, so we thought it was a little sad that Paris don't we could not find really onigiri and also we thought of course 
Japanese as a way to see onigiri, which is very Japanese and it's lovely. So it's a lot about seaweed, raw fish, uh, things like that. But we saw the onigiri was a great thing that could be a little more, we could have a little more experiments than only Japanese cooking. And so that's why we did uh, nanikole. And uh, so it's really, uh, we have things which are uh, like classical Japanese, like I don't know, uh, shizo yukari, which will be the Japanese basil with uh, an, an, uh, uh, seaweed. Or example, we have things like, which is very popular in Japan, which is, um, how do you say, poulet pane fried chicken, I would say, with a little mayonnaise. So this doesn't seem Japanese, but it's one of the most popular onigiri recipe in Japan. And after we have things which are completely new, like, uh, Uh, Moroccan onigiri with a kefta inside, or with a merguez, or with ratatouille, or paella onigiri. And we thought the right is such a great uh, medium uh, for all this, and it's a nice way to have uh, uh, food on the, on the go, in a way. And so that's why we have an onigiri counter also. So nothing is really logical, it's just the logic is what we are interested in now. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Paris Good Food and Wine. I'm your host, Paige. Donner. This episode of Paris Good Food and Wine has been brought to you by Paris Food and Wine. You can find us at parisfoodandwine.net. Next, we'll be speaking with the acclaimed chef. Sylvestre Wahid, who earned himself two Michelin stars for his restaurant Sylvestre on Rue Saint-Dominique. This gem is hidden above the celebrated Brasserie Tumieux and offers a complete dining experience in an elegant, subdued setting. Chef Wahid, one of the things that Tell me if I'm right or wrong, but it seems that somebody, a chef who has two Michelin stars such as yourself, one of the challenges that you have to always meet is to source very interesting products. So not just use them in a very original and creative way, but also be able to source them. And one of the things that I've noticed on your menu is blackened fermented garlic. Can you tell me a little bit more about this? Because that is the first time I've seen that product on anybody's menu and used such in such a creative way. You know, uh, a good morning eh? or good evening. I don't know what time it will be. No, no, the, it's all about uh, food and uh, passion about meeting some people. And uh, I traveling a lot. I like traveling. I like Asia, Japan, uh, Thailand, Middle East, uh, France, of course, Europe, America, South America. So when you go somewhere, you can always find some products you like. This is the first thing. And I traveling a lot. Second thing, I'm very lucky because when you have two mission start or one mission start, whatever, or three mission start, a lot of people coming to see you with some products and want to try this kind of product, this kind of product, try this one, try this one. And uh, the black, gla black gla uh, garlic, uh, uh, when, uh, one day I was in the kitchen and uh, one uh, Chinese girl coming uh, in the kitchen, uh, She said, uh, I'm in Paris and I, I start to working with uh, uh, Japanese people, Japanese girls, sorry. We make a, a black garlic from Japan. Do you want to try? I said, what is this black garlic? 
She says it's about fermentation uh, with uh, uh, sea uh, sea water, very long time, and after dry. I said, why not? Let's try. And uh, she gave me one, and she left because I uh, I don't have very time to talk with her at this time. So I take the garlic, I put uh, on my box. I say I will try uh, for the menu uh, in the service, evening service, and. Uh, when people uh, vegetarian people ask me if you have something vegetarian vegetarian on your menu, I say yes, of course. At this time, I was cauliflower, so I make like some cauliflower roasted with a uh, little bit of curry leaves, uh, bed goji, uh, and I say, oh, listen, we're gonna try with a uh, bag garlic because uh, so I cut little cauliflower, little bed goji. Uh, and I take one garlic and I eat like that. It's, wow, it's very good. <laughs> so I start to like that, you know. It's like little accident because uh, I one girl coming to see me, she proposed me some products. I, I spoke with her. I didn't know her, but I don't want to say I don't have a time uh, take an appointment or like that. I say, give me your products. I will try when I have time and call you back. And the next day I call her back to say I want to work with you and uh, uh, please bring me another different products you have. This episode of Paris Good Food and Wine has been brought to you by Paris Food and Wine. You can find us at parisfoodandwine.net. One of those happy accidents, I guess it's probably difficult to remain open like that, especially when you're on such a regimented uh, schedule. You, you travel a lot, you give uh, classes in Brazil, uh, te- you know, cooking classes all over the, the, the world. Um, you know, at your restaurant Sylvestre, which is uh, Restaurant Sylvestre Wahid, um, that's your two-star restaurant. You also have the Brasserie Tremu, which is on the ground floor, on the street level, and then the two Michelin stars on the upstairs. Um, you've now embarked upon a new menu starting this spring. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because, I mean, that's where I, I saw the... Um, the blackened garlic, blackened fermented garlic, which really caught my eye, which you just explained to us. But what's your philosophy now for your new menu? There seems to be a bit, I've heard you describe it as there being a little bit of a, of a feminine touch to it. But I, then again, I mean, there's such, there's duck there, there's steak, you know, there's all kinds of stuff for everybody's tastes, I think. No, I, when I decide to, uh, to open the restaurant for lunch because usually time we close for lunch, and this time I say we beginning this year I wanna open the restaurant for lunch because my goal was to bring some new people in the kitchen uh, in the restaurant, younger people or some people who like to try the Michelin star restaurant because usually time the Michelin star restaurant is very expensive, you know this is the reputation of uh, Michelin star restaurant. And how we can bring some new people in your restaurant. So I say, I decide to open the restaurant for lunch. And uh, when I spoke with my direction, I say, if I open a restaurant for lunch, I want to give some uh, uh, two kinds of experience. One about food, of course, this is my goal. But another experience is uh, try to make people happy. And making people happy is a philosophy that I think both Gold and Bourdain also subscribed to. Though I think it's equally as important to make oneself happy too. Food and wine aren't, of course, the sole means to happiness, but when you are happy, they sure make the moments taste even sweeter.
In any case, the most important thing I learned from listening to and watching these two great food journalists and hosts, critics, over the years is that it really is all about the people. Food and wine is, in essence, really about people and the soul of life. So on that note, thank you for joining me for this special tribute episode of Paris Good Food and Wine. Both Bourdain and Gold inspired me tremendously over the years. May they rest in peace. In gratitude, this is Paige Donner host and producer of Paris, Good Food and Wine. <laughs>